ReachMD is proud to bring you the Pharmacy Report with your host, Linda Bernstein, PharmD, clinical professor at the School of Pharmacy, University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for joining us for the Pharmacy Report on ReachMD. Each week, we'll bring you an interesting mix of pharmaceutical news, expert interviews, commentary, and special tips to benefit your practice and patients. Today, the spotlight is on type 1 diabetes and the new paradigms of research in disease detection, prevention, and treatment. In our Movers and Shakers segment, we have Dr. Stephen E. Gittleman, Professor of Clinical Pediatrics and Chair of Pediatric Diabetes and Clinical Research at the University of California, San Francisco. He will share with us his fascinating path of discovery and research into this complex disease and how someday it could revolutionize our therapeutic approach to not only the patient, but disease prevention in at-risk family members. But first, we begin with this week's headline news. Now for the lead story. A recent issue of JAMA describes findings from a randomized clinical trial of 95 type 1 diabetes patients with impaired awareness of hypoglycemia who were given sensor-augmented pump therapy. The study, conducted in Australia over a six-month trial period, found that sensor-augmented pump therapy with automated insulin suspension, as compared to the standard pump, reduced the combined rate of severe and moderate hypoglycemia in patients with type 1 diabetes. The pump, by Medtronic and just approved by the Food and Drug Administration, is able to detect and respond to low levels of blood glucose and automatically cease insulin delivery for up to two hours when the sensor glucose falls below a preset threshold. Why is it important? Three-quarters of severe hypoglycemia episodes in children with diabetes occur at night, so it's a huge concern for parents and may lead to underdosing of insulin or taking in extra carbohydrates that increase blood glucose levels. Other study findings included no associated change in glycated hemoglobin and no diabetic ketoacidosis or hyperglycemia with ketoacidosis during the intervention. In an associated editorial, it was noted that this is the only randomized clinical trial of continuous glucose monitoring to selectively recruit high-risk patients with impaired awareness of hypoglycemia and demonstrate a significant reduction in severe hypoglycemia. Among the study limitations are that the patients were younger and had shorter duration of diabetes than more typical patients who are unaware of hypoglycemia, so the findings may not be as pertinent to older populations. We continue our journal watch with a perspective article in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled, Prescription Drug Coupons, No Such Thing as a Free Lunch. The authors reviewed a large internet drug coupon website and identified drug coupons for 374 brand name prescription-only drugs. More than 75% were for chronic conditions. The median manufacturer subsidy was $60, but it varied widely from $5 to $5,000. Almost two-thirds of coupons were for brand-name products for which lower-cost therapeutic equivalents or generic alternatives were available. The authors commented on the hidden costs of these coupons for patients and society. For example, many coupons are for a limited period, after which time the patient, who has developed a loyalty to the brand, will have to pay higher co-pays to continue the treatment. Insurers are still having to pay manufacturers for higher brand name products and are likely to raise coverage rates for all patients. 
There are also some legal questions, with lawsuits alleging that drug coupons subvert the cost-sharing arrangements set in patients' contracts with their insurance companies and should be barred as illegal kickbacks. Furthermore, federal policy disallows use of coupons by patients in publicly subsidized drug insurance programs, such as Medicare and Medicaid. So while drug coupons sound good on the surface, they may result in higher long-term expenses for patients and society. In other news, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a drug safety communication announcing the approved changes to the prescribing information of the immune-suppressing and anti-cancer drugs Arzera, or Ofatumumab, and Rituxan, or Rituximab, to add new boxed warning information about the risk of reactivation of hepatitis B virus, or HBV, infection. The revised labels will also include additional recommendations for screening, monitoring, and managing patients on these drugs to decrease this risk. Both Arzera and Rituxan are used to treat certain cancers of the blood and lymph system. Rituxan is also approved to treat other medical conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis. Both drugs suppress the body's immune system. Let's turn now to our main event for the show called Movers and Shakers, where I talk to the experts and find out their views on important issues facing the world of pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. Today's topic is new research paradigms into type 1 diabetes. My guest is Dr. Stephen E. Gittleman, Professor of Clinical Pediatrics, Chair of Pediatric Diabetes and Clinical Research at the University of California, San Francisco, and lead investigator on several studies pertaining to type 1 diabetes detection, prevention, and treatment. Dr. Gittleman, welcome to the Pharmacy Report. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Gittleman, why have you chosen this area of research, and what is your goal? So I think part of this is personal and part of it's professional. And I grew up in a family where I watched different family members trying to manage their lives with type 1 diabetes and really appreciating the complexities therein. I have a father who happened to be an adult nephrologist, so I saw the impact on young adults in his practice who had kidney failure from diabetes-related issues. And as I went through my medical training, diabetes seemed to be one of those things that surely we should be able to solve. Why, why can't we screen and predict who's going to get the disease and stop it from happening? And for those who have established disease, why can't we just replace the missing beta cell? So I think that's the passion that I bring to work in, in trying to solve this problem. And has the incidence of type 1 diabetes changed over time, actually? I know type 2 diabetes because of all the obesity in this country and even starting in childhood has become an issue. What about type 1 diabetes? Has that changed in terms of its incidence? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right. Type 2 gets a lot of the media attention, but there's actually been a steady rise, unfortunately, in type 1 diabetes as well. And the risk has increased now at about 3 to 5% per year. And that's particularly in younger children, children under the age of 6. So we're not sure why that's the case. Clearly, the genetics in the population is not changing. So it has to have something to do with environmental triggers that synergize with that genetic risk. But we just don't really understand at the moment why this is happening. So please describe for us the studies that you're currently leading and perhaps how they differ from traditional diabetes research. So this gets back to your earlier question about you know, what we're trying to accomplish in the field. And I, I kind of divide it into those 
at risk and those who, who already have disease. And in the at-risk population, we're one of 18 centers around the world conducting a mission that's sponsored by the National Institutes of Health called TrialNet. And we've developed an algorithm whereby we can screen and predict who might develop diabetes. And our first pass at this is we take a blood sample and we screen for the presence of autoantibodies. There are at least five of these now that are present before the diagnosis of diabetes, sometimes as far as 10 to 20 years before the diagnosis. So if you have one or more of these antibodies, we know that the immune system is on and mistakenly attacking the beta cells. So our next tool is to look at metabolism, and not surprisingly, if you're moving from this continuum of risk towards diabetes, at some point your oral glucose tolerance test starts to drift from completely normal to mild abnormalities, something we might call impaired glucose tolerance, but not yet in the diabetes range. So we have an immunologic marker, we have a metabolic marker, and we're now also starting to develop genetic markers as well to refine the risk. And, and the main thing we do now is we look at the HLA type, that's about, uh, confers about 50% of the genetic risk. And there are actually some HLA haplotypes that will confer protection as opposed to putting you at risk. So it's very important to know some of those signature genotypes. So these trends occur even in children, and perhaps does that mean that we should start looking at even infants and see if they have these markers at birth? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, currently, for the screening programs we do, we start from age 1, and we'll screen anyone up to age 45. Type 1 diabetes can occur at any age. You know, it's more likely in the pediatric age group, but there's this long continuum, you know, even into the 60s and beyond. The earliest that we tend to see type 1 is probably 9 to 12 months of life. And, and some other studies are doing some newborn screening where instead of using the immunologic markers as their first pass at risk assessment, they do genotyping first. So I, I think we'll end up comparing assessments across some of these different networks and revising our algorithms as time goes on. One of your studies is looking at abatacept to see if it delays or prevents diabetes in relatives at risk for type 1 diabetes. That's an immunotherapy agent used for rheumatoid arthritis. What's your rationale for using it in this clinical setting? Yeah, that's a great question. So this gets at the heart of the matter of, you know, what causes type 1 diabetes? And we do think that this is autoimmune mediated. There's nice evidence from animal models as well as studies in man, and it's primarily a T cell mediated disease. So in trying to devise clinical therapies that can alter the course, we look at what could alter T cell behavior, and we often draw on findings from other autoimmune diseases, such as the rheumatoid arthritis finding that you mentioned, and we also look at transplantation. And there's also a mouse model of type 1 diabetes that can be very informative to us as well. So, you know, there's been a whole series of trials that have been attempted over the past few decades, and those that look most promising are things that affect T-cell function. Our earlier studies were more generalized immunosuppressants, such as cyclosporin, which they're effective. They'll preserve beta cell function, but it comes at a risk, the risk of continuous immunosuppression. So the push for us has been to find things that are more selective and less likely to put someone at long-term risk. The particular example that you mentioned with abatacep, that blocks T-cell activation. We actually used it in a trial for people with recent onset diabetes 
who were in the honeymoon phase of diabetes. They still had some remnant beta cell function existing. And in that trial, we found that it was a safe and effective means to extend the honeymoon. The effect lasted about 10 months. And the thought now is, why don't we use it in people at risk for diabetes before they've actually developed disease? Maybe it'll be even more effective if we move upstream. And the abatacep approach is just one example of a series of other efforts that I think we'll be launching. There's another approach with a related drug, something that targets the CD3 portion of the T-cell receptor. And so we've actually had some very nice success with an anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody in nuanced diabetes. And there's actually a prevention trial with that as well. So it sounds like eventually perhaps there's going to be, because of this complexity of this disease, that there's going to be a multifaceted approach to both preventing the onset and delaying the disease progression. That's exactly right. And I think whatever we learn at the new onset stage is very, very important. And that's not just because it helps preserve that remnant that's there. It informs us about what we might try upstream to prevent diabetes. But there's also a whole other huge effort for people with long-standing diabetes. And you know, what can we do to replace beta cell function? And the engineers are hard at work here with things like pumps and continuous glucose sensors that can link and drive a closed-loop system. But our hope is really eventually that we'll just have a means of replacing beta cells. And one way to do that is a whole pancreas transplant, and that's successful, but that's a big procedure, long-term immunosuppression, very technical surgery, but it works. People have tried just purifying away the clusters of beta cells, the islets out of that pancreas, and infusing the islets. Sounds simple and straightforward. It is an easy procedure to reinfuse those islets. They don't seem to last as long as the whole pancreas transplant does. They fade over a series of years. So really, and there are not a lot of these organs to go around from donors. So really, I think the push has been now to use beta cells derived from stem cells, and that works proceeding nicely. We can develop a cell that's almost an insulin-secreting beta cell in vitro, When you put those cells into an animal model of diabetes, they'll complete their differentiation and cure the animal of diabetes. And so now we're very close to being able to do this for man. And I think you'll see clinical trials coming probably in the next one to two years with this approach. Here's the problem. That sounds great, but it's still an immunologic issue. So if today I could find that stem cell and expand it up and make unlimited number of beta cells for the person affected with diabetes, that'd be great, but the immune system has destroyed that population once, they'll destroy them again. So we're going to have to know not only how to, you know, produce these beta cells, but we're going to have to find a way to protect them. And so whatever we learn from our new onset trials could also be applied downstream to the infusion of these stem cell-derived beta cells. I think we're going to have to have some means to curtail that autoimmune response in order to have a successful stem cell-based therapy. So, Dr. Gittleman, it sounds like it's definitely going to be a multifaceted approach in the future as we try to tackle this very challenging disease. Are you still seeking subjects for your studies, and how can our listeners help in patient referral or as an investigation site? Oh, yes, absolutely. We'd be happy to partner with other healthcare professionals, and we're very eager to talk to people with type 1 diabetes and see if they qualify for any of these efforts. 
and also to screen their relatives ages 1 to 45. I think the best way to get connected is probably through our Diabetes Center website at UCSF. That's www.diabetes.ucsf.edu, and that has a complete listing of the current trials. Uh, We also have an electronic newsletter that's very informative about our new findings and new studies that are coming, so feel free to subscribe to that as well. Thank you, Dr. Gittleman. It's been great talking with you today, and I hope you'll join us again to provide an update on your research findings. I'll be happy to. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen E. Gittleman, Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. Before we sign off, it's time for the segment called Something You Can Do. Here's something you can do in the realm of smoking cessation. First things first, be a role model for your patients. If you smoke, quit. Next, you can tell your patients about the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's 2013 Tips from Former Smokers campaign, including 1-800-QUIT-NOW, a number that links callers to their state quit lines. The website is www.cdc.gov forward slash tips and features information on the campaign as well as information on how to quit smoking from the National Cancer Institute's www.smokefree.gov website. Successful smoking cessation may require a combination of methods to be most effective, including clinical interventions, counseling, both group and one-on-one, nicotine replacement products, prescription and OTC, and prescription non-nicotine medications, such as bupropion SR and verenicline tartrate. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of the Pharmacy Report. Again, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen E. Gittleman, for sharing his insights on type 1 diabetes research. To check out this and other episodes of the Pharmacy Report, visit our website at reachmd.com forward slash pharmacy report. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Linda Bernstein.